If you missed last week, you can jump online and listen to it. Jake Medcalf warned us that many of us are tares, and some of us are in danger of becoming tares. And that thought was on my mind all week as I looked at these texts about what parables do to us, that they can soften our hearts, they can teach us truth, but they can also bounce right off of us if we are people whose hearts are hardened. So let's read this text. This is Matthew 13, 31 through 35, with open hearts and open minds. Jesus, that's the he, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest. It is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. And so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And Jesus claims that when we hear parables, and we really hear them, it unlocks something that has been previously undisclosed to us. And that parables are a great tool to disclose hidden truth to us. And in these two parables this morning, Jesus tells his followers that the gospel of Jesus Christ can take over the entire world through a very passionate, small group of people who are on fire for Jesus. And would you consider yourself on fire for Jesus? Sometimes I fear that as we get older, our hearts start to get harder instead of softer in our faith. You ever felt that? It feels like what should happen is the closer you get to Jesus, the longer you're with Jesus, the more your heart is transformed into the image of Jesus, and the more God is using you to do more and more and more in the lives of the people around you. But so often, that's not the case. So often it seems that when we're in high school, when we're in college, when we're young adults, we are on fire for the Lord, and then something happens. Maybe it's kids or something. Something happens. And we get tired, and our hearts start to clamp down. And maybe last week you, you were moved by the message, and it felt like your heart was kind of unclamping for the first time in a long time maybe for you. But then a lot of times, like Monday morning, it just clamps back down again. Or you hear stories from Mark Tyler about missions, people's lives being changed all around the world, and you can think back to times where you would hear stories like that, you'd be fired up, right? You'd want to go and preach the gospel to every creature, like it says in Mark. But, but these days, you hear those stories, you're just kind of like, ah, I heard them before. People get saved, that's what people do. I wonder how many of them are real conversions, right? You start getting hard. And you see it happening, you wonder, what is happening to me? And you... You can't stop it. It's just like your heart is clamping down and the emotion and the passion and the fire to serve the Lord and see him do great things, it's like it's going out. That's what I think Jake meant last week when he said some of us are tares and some of us are in danger of becoming tares. That when Jesus tells these parables, he says that they're like seeds that a farmer throws 
into a field, and some of them hit good soil, a soft heart, and they take root and they grow. And other ones, on the other side of the spectrum, they hit the path, the rocky, hard, stomp-down path, and they just bounce there, and the birds eat them. Jesus says, when I tell parables, for some of you, these truths that we'll uncover this morning will permeate your heart and change your lives. And for others of you, it just bounces right off. Some of you, your walk with Jesus started out so strong, but now it's kind of withering and dying. Jesus says that's what happens sometimes is the seed goes into soil, but there's weeds there, or there's rocks there, or there's bad stuff there that chokes it out and it dies. And so the condition of our hearts is what Jesus is ultimately concerned about when he shares these parables. Because the danger is that if our hearts are hardened, that this sermon is going to mean nothing to us. Sometimes I hear people say, oh yeah, I used to go to church, but the sermons just stopped. I just felt like it didn't impact me anymore. And they're kind of blaming me or whoever the pastor is, right? <laughs> or maybe we're getting worse up here at preaching or something, maybe, right? When I hear that, I feel for that person because more likely what's happening is that their heart is growing hard and they're not realizing it and they're thinking it's the word that's changing. The word's the same, it's their heart that's clamped down and sermons just bounce off of them now. So if we're going to understand these parables, our hearts are going to need to be softened and soft to receive them. So this morning as we open this text in in prayer, I want to spend some time before I open in prayer to give us a moment to, to sit before the Lord. Maybe you're realizing my heart has been hard for a long time. Right? Maybe you've just had a hard week and your mind is just spinning. Let's take this next minute or two and just come before the Lord and say, God, if my heart is hard, soften it. Lord, you tell us in your word that you will replace our heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Maybe you need that. Maybe this morning before the sermon you need to come to Jesus and say, God, I've never trusted you. I, I need to because these undisclosed mysteries of the faith I've never understood. And you tell us that our hearts need to be prepared to receive them, God. Transform my heart even now. So let's take a couple minutes. Let's sit before the Lord. Confess your sin. Ask God to soften your heart. And then I'll open our time in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we approach you, and so many of us realize that we have been hardened to you, 
maybe for a long time. Maybe something happened that derailed our faith. Maybe we're busy or we're successful and we don't feel like we need you and we coast on autopilot and we keep coming to church because you're supposed to, but it doesn't mean anything anymore. Maybe we have doubts that plague us and that poison our minds and our heart against you. Maybe life hasn't turned out the way you've, we've thought that you were going to turn out our lives and we're bitter. Maybe we're more interested in other things than we are in you and your glory and your kingdom. Lord, we confess these things to you. and We confess that these are hard issues. If we have doubts, we can't change that. If we have circumstances in the past, we can't change that. If we're going through a good time, we, well, we could change that. But Lord, we know that life is in your hands. And, and so we pray that you would craft our hearts. That we would be people who take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. But at the same time, that we would be people who would seek you and ask you to change the hearts that are in our bodies. The, the will, the mind within us that takes these truths and discerns them, Lord. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds even now to receive these parables. That Jesus tells us that he's going to disclose previous hidden mysteries. We pray that you would disclose something to us that's life-changing. That you would turn us into a community, a large community or a small community or whatever community we find ourselves in, we would be a community of people who would be on fire for you and we would see your kingdom start to expand over all the earth while we await the day you will come back and sit on your throne in this place forever. Give us the faith to believe that the reality you present about yourself is more true than the reality we perceive around us in our world. And give us the faith and the courage to walk in that worldview. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I think we can break the whole world up into two types of people, engineers and artists. How many of you are married to an engineer or are one? How many of you are an artist or married to an artist? All right. The rest of you are something else. Tell me what you are. So there's three groups, I guess. There are a lot of beautiful things about the engineering mind, right? There are a lot of professions, there are a lot of places in this world that you need to be absolutely precise, right? Like, I want someone with an engineering mind to be my surgeon if I've got a brain tumor, right? I don't want someone saying, like, oh, you know what would be really cool if we could make his brain look like a wave or something? No, like, I want the guy with, I want someone who's precise, if you're a finished carpenter, you've got to be precise, right? You don't want to build these cabinets or get all this wood cut and you bring it to the house and it doesn't fit, right? You've got to be on it. You've got to get your measurements right. You need to be precise. And a lot of times approaching the scriptures, we need to be absolutely precise, right? If you're a theologian, you want to explain the Trinity. You don't want to play fast and loose with that stuff. Right? You don't want to go and present like, oh, Jesus, he was kind of God, but then there's this spirit and he's like dancing, right? No, right? You have to be precise, right? To understand the tension of the mysteries of the faith, you need to be precise. Sometimes precision is great. Other times precision is like super annoying, right? And that's if you're married to the engineer or you, uh, maybe if you are the one, you might realize that sometimes your precision can make you annoying, Right? 
Like I said, how many of you have sister-in-laws? Some of you would be like... <laughs> we'll talk about that later too. Uh, some of you right now are thinking, did he just say sister-in-laws? Doesn't he know that it's actually sisters-in-law? Right? Right? If I said, did you know that Lake Tahoe has 40 million gallons of water in it, right? Some of you would be like, um, actually, technically, it has 40 billion gallons of water in it. Right? And some of you right now are like shaking because it actually has 40 trillion gallons of water in it. And if there's, there's something in you where everything has to be precise, right? You probably love Excel. You just love it. <laughs> right? Your family vacations are probably very, very strictly scheduled, right? And there's something great about that. But sometimes there's something kind of annoying or unhelpful about that, too. And I think that there are places in Scripture that we need to approach the text with precision, to understand the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic or whatever's coming through, right? We need to be precise. But there's other times, and sometimes it's simultaneously, we need to approach the Scriptures not as an engineer, but as an artist. There are sometimes that the scriptures are trying to present truths that if you get stuck in engineer mode, you miss them. And parables are one of those places. And the reason that I realize this is a problem is because my mind a lot of times goes into engineering mode. And as I spent this week wrestling through this text about the mustard seed, all that kept pounding in my brain was that the mustard seed is not technically the smallest seed. <laughs> right? If you've ever had a Bible study about this parable, that's what you end up talking about. Right? Jesus says the, parent, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And someone says, actually, um, technically, the, I don't know, chia seed or something, some seed is smaller than the mustard seed. And, and so they're wrong, right? And, and this became such a problem that in some of the modern translations, it might say in your Bible, the smallest of all your seeds, right? Like the word your isn't in the Greek, but the translators are like, listen, stop worrying about it being the smallest. Jesus is trying to say it's the smallest of the seeds that you have. But then some engineer brain people said, well, actually, even the Jewish people had seeds that were smaller than the mustard seed, right? And, and so this parable that was designed to impact our heart with a truth that's transformational about the kingdom became a debate about which seed is the smallest. And for some of us, that's a big deal because we say, well, I thought the Bible was supposed to be true. Is this Jesus? Does Jesus not even know which of the smallest seeds? I thought he made the seeds. But Jesus is just talking because in a way that's human, right? We talk about that. Like my family, we, we've got... We've got a lot of kids. Jake made fun of me last week, but he's got a lot of kids too. Uh, we've got six kids right now. We have four boys. We're in the process of adopting two girls. And so a lot of kids, right? And one thing that comes with having a lot of kids is you don't fit in your car anymore. And so we had to buy a Suburban, right? You would say, well, a minivan could technically fit eight people that are in your family. But it doesn't because when you put car seats in a minivan, you can't move the seats anymore. And so the back row becomes un get to a bowl, right? You can't get into the back row. <laughs> and so I had to go find a, a Suburban, and so I buy the Suburban, and, and now I have a Suburban. So imagine that I'm telling you, right? I'm, I'm bragging about my Suburban. This, none of this is true, what I'm about to say. But imagine that I said to you, oh, the Suburban, it's great. It, it is great, but it, it's, a great, it's a great truck. Like, it, it's like the Suburban's the biggest car you can buy, but, but, 
but it handles like a sports car. Like when you're going down Crow Canyon at like 80 miles an hour, you're driving a sports car down Crow Canyon, right? Some of you might be thinking, well, technically, the Suburban's not the biggest car you can buy, right? <laughs> right? And so I can go, well, yeah, I mean, but it's the, it's the, the biggest um, passenger vehicle that you can buy. Well, well, no, technically, Nissan makes, so I know, right? I know. When I say it's the biggest car, it's a figure of speech, right? That's what Jesus is saying. And so let's not get caught up with the technical details. And here's the reason why. Because when we become people with parables who get so caught up in the technical details that we miss the heart of the parable, we are proving ourselves to be the people that Jesus said parables are meant to repel, Right? He says parables exist so that people who want to learn about Christ will hear those things, and people who want to get caught up in technicalities will just bounce right off of them. And so we need to approach these parables with soft hearts and say, okay, Jesus is not teaching a class on organic chemistry or biology, right? And Jesus is trying to paint a picture. So the question is, what is the picture that Jesus is trying to paint? He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the state of the world when Christ is on the throne and the whole world is under the reign of the one who sits on that throne. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts out small. It's the smallest of all your seeds, not technically, but it is. And it grows to be the the largest among your plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air perch in its branches There's a story in the Old Testament, it comes up three different times, about a mighty kingdom looking like a tree, right? One of the times in the Old Testament, it's about the kingdom of God, and twice in the Old Testament, it's about pagan kingdoms, and it's an image that keeps emerging that a mighty kingdom is like a mighty tree. And in the Old Testament, the type of tree is a cedar tree. And this cedar tree grows, and it's gigantic, and its branches extend out really far, and its canopy extends out really far, and the birds of the air come, and they perch in its branches, and the beasts of the field come, and they give birth in the comfort and protection of its shade. And the image is that a mighty kingdom is like a mighty tree, and the shadow of its reign extends over all the earth and provides protection and provision to all its inhabitants. That's the image in the Old Testament. And when the people in Jesus' day were thinking about a mighty kingdom, they had two images in their mind. They had the image of the mighty cedar whose branches, whose canopy extended over all the earth. And they had the picture of the Roman Empire whose shadow extended all over the Mediterranean. The goal of the Roman Empire was to extend the power of Rome to the ends of the earth. And so when the people of the New Testament pictured a kingdom, they pictured this mighty tree with its branches, and they pictured Rome and Caesar on the throne, and these mighty, mighty, mighty boundaries. And Jesus comes to them and says, listen, I want to talk to you about my kingdom, and I want you to understand that it's not what you think it is. Right? He keeps getting in trouble with this. Right, the people on Palm Sunday, they try to make him the king. Right? They try to parade him into the temple and have him sit on the throne and rule over all the earth. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how I'm going to become king. That's not how my kingdom works. Right? He goes into the temple, he turns the tables over and says, i got to clean this place up first. That's not how Jesus is meant to become king. He's not going to be a Messiah who walks into Israel, takes the throne, sends out an army, slaughters Rome, and takes over the world. That's not how it's going to happen right now, Jesus says. Let me explain to you a little more about how the kingdom of God is going to work. Yes, it's going to be like a tree. 
But let's stop talking about a cedar because you keep thinking about Rome. Let's talk about the mustard tree. And we know that's miraculous and remarkable about a mustard tree is that it starts as a really, really small seed. It doesn't start as a tree, right? It's not like just someone comes in and God goes, tree, right? A cedar also doesn't start as a tree, right? But Jesus is saying, picture the mustard seed, a small, small seed, and, and someone plants it in the ground, and, and it dies, and it breaks, and it bears fruit, and it starts growing, and it becomes the largest shrub in your garden, and it becomes a tree. And some of you are thinking, uh, technically, a mustard tree is not a tree. It's a bush, right? You've studied. You know your stuff. And technically, Jesus says that. He, he says it's it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. And you're like, well, technically, a plant can't become a tree. They're like a totally different order in the kingdom of plants. That's true. What Jesus is trying to say is that my kingdom will look like a mighty kingdom that extends over all the earth, but it's not the type of kingdom that you're picturing when you picture the kingdoms of this world. Right? We get into trouble with this a lot. Because we look around this world, right, and sometimes we hear stories of all these people coming to Christ around the world, and we're like, this is amazing. But other times we look around the world and we think, this world is falling apart, right? Well, we need someone who's going to come and sit on a throne and kill all the bad people and make all the good people good, right? We, we need that. And in a sense, we ask that Jesus would come back and set up a kingdom and bring his final judgment. But sometimes we look around and we say, God, why is it not happening? Right? We look at the presidential election and we look at, the, <laughs> oh, man, right? And, and we're saying, God, I, I thought you were going to, like, raise up a candidate who could make America God's country or something. But who is that? Right? And maybe you know the guy or girl who could talk to me about that. But I think if you're lamenting about that, and if you're thinking that the way that God is going to bring his kingdom to this earth is by electing a great official, right, you're just wrong. That's not how he's going to do it. And that's what Jesus is trying to say is that when you picture the kingdom of God, yes, it's a big, mighty kingdom that extends, but don't picture an earthly kingdom. It's not a tree that's like the earthly trees. It's one that becomes a tree, right? It, it carries out the function of an earthly kingdom, but it's totally different, right? And the whole time Jesus walked the earth, he kept trying to turn people's minds around about what this kingdom would look like. He said, stop picturing the kingdoms of this world. It's not the greatest will be the best in my kingdom. It's the last will be first in my kingdom, right? It's not the strongest will lead in my kingdom. It's the weak and the meek and the mild and the poor and the downcast and the outtrod and the fatherless will be the greatest in my kingdom. It's the opposite. It's not a mighty tree. It looks like one, but it's different. It's different. It starts small and gets so big, but don't picture Rome. Picture a mustard seed going to start with one seemingly insignificant morsel that hits the ground and dies and then resurrects into something that grows and grows and grows. Right, as we keep reading Matthew and we jump into Acts, we see that's exactly how it happened. And that Jesus walked this earth. He kept trying to tell the people, get ready, the kingdom's coming, but it's not what you think it's going to be, right? And they still try to crown him king. They still try to make him king by force. They still try to make him rule. They still are excited to kill Rome, right? They're so excited about that. And then he falls to the ground and dies. He lays in the grave, and they think, oh, no, Jesus is dead. Our king is gone. 
How now will he reign? But Jesus, the seed that falls to the ground and dies, resurrects. And out of the grave emerges the beginning of a kingdom of God. And he appears to all these people and says, okay, it's time for it to start. And then he ascends into heaven, sits down on his throne after ascending to it, and begins to reign and the plant begins to grow. The disciples are all in one place and all of a sudden, boom, the spirit comes and boom, the world starts to change. And it grows and it grows and it grows towards the ends of the earth. And Christianity becomes this mighty kingdom that looks like a a mighty cedar, but it's not like any kingdom anyone has ever seen. It's It's an organic kingdom. It's a serving kingdom. It's a Christ-honoring kingdom. It's a humble kingdom. It's like a mustard seed. And though it's the smallest of all seeds, it grows and becomes the largest among the garden plants and becomes a tree where the birds of the air perch in its branches. And one of the reasons that we grow hardened in our faith is Sometimes we look around the world and we feel like, well, does this even work? I thought Jesus was supposed to reign over all the earth. I feel like he's not even reigning in my house half the time. My community's falling apart and people are dying and there's murders all over the place and injustice and sin and no righteousness. And it seems like this world is covered in darkness. Is this even true, right? And then we hear, no, 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 it's, that's how the kingdom grows. It grows slowly and organically and takes over the whole earth. And, and so the question becomes, well, how does it do that, right? How can something that's so small and insignificant permeate something so large? How can something that's so powerless seeming take over an establishment that's so big and powerful? How can a tiny church, how can a tiny community, how can one man's death and resurrection permeate into every crack and crevice and cul-de-sac and corner of planet Earth? How can it happen? And Jesus says, it's like yeast. It's a really small thing. And that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. With mustard seed, he tells us that it grows, and with the yeast, he tells us how it grows. Now, i got to confess to you guys, I am like the world's biggest, not probably not, but maybe this room's biggest yeast nerd. Like, I am fascinated by yeast. That sounds like a really weird statement. Let me tell you some more about it. Last year, I read an article that said that that yeast is such an essential part of so many different foods, right? If you, if you make wine or if you're making beer or if you're making bread, right, yeast is an essential part of that, right? And, and yeast exists everywhere. Like, look at your hands. There's yeast on your hands. It's just there, right? You're pulling out the antibacterial soap. You're like this. It's gone. And then, boom, it's going to come back. It's everywhere. And, and so if you've eaten San Francisco sourdough, which you probably have, It tastes like San Francisco sourdough because the yeast in San Francisco sourdough is yeast from San Francisco, right? Like, I don't know the biological name, but it's called, like, San Franciscolacus or something. Like, that's the strain of yeast that's in San Francisco sourdough. And so if you want to make some San Francisco sourdough that tastes like San Francisco sourdough, here's how you do it. You take some flour, you take some water, you put it on your counter in your kitchen, and you wait till it starts bubbling in, like, a week. 
Right? Don't wait three weeks because you don't get really sour gross yeast. You wait like a week. And it starts bubbling, right? And then you get some more thing. And you, you move it to a new one. You move it to a new one. And eventually you have this yeast colony. It's, it's called a leaven. It's called a starter. And the way that the yeast gets there is it was already there. It was on your flour. It was on your hands when you mixed it, right? That's why French bakers just use their hands for everything. Because the yeast on our body permeates through the food that we make and we eat. And that's gross to you and not to me. That's awesome, right? And so if you make a yeast starter and you grab some San Francisco sourdough bacteria and you're like, this is great, you cap it up, then you move back to St. Louis and you try to keep feeding it, keep it alive, eventually it's going to stop becoming San Francisco yeast and it's going to start becoming, where did I say we were? St. Louis yeast, right? <laughs> because the yeast starts, the new yeast from the, the native yeast starts to permeate it and, and it turns into something new. I read an article last year that said that, that around the whole world, there are different yeast strains in every community. All billions, trillions of yeast strains. Engineers figure out how many there are. There are a lot of yeast strains. And this guy said, I'm starting a project because the lamentable fact is that of all of the beer in the world, there's only like four countries represented as producing the yeast. He said, there is no Native American yeast used in brewing. I thought, that's messed up. So he said, here's what I'm doing. I'm creating a laboratory, and I want people to find yeast in their backyard. I want them to send it to my lab. I'm going to chirogenically freeze it. This is the nerd part. And now I'm going to have a catalog of wild yeast from every community in the world. And I thought, I'm in, right? Because I looked at the list, and there was none from here. And this is the best place to live in the world, right? And so I go to Lake Chabot, and I brought some uh, urinalysis jars because they're sterile, because they're sterile. And I went to a blackberry bush, and I cut, cut a blackberry off. And I went to a California redwood, and I cut it off. And I went to a bay laurel, and I cut it off. And I put it in the jar. Then I went home, and I covered it in this sugar water. And I watched for a couple weeks as it started to bubble. And then I made up all these Petri dishes, and I took out, yep, and I took out <laughs> s- some of what was happening in that jar, and I smeared it on the Petri dish, and I watched it grow. And mold colonies would form, and every once in a while, little yeast colonies would form. And so every time a yeast colony would form, I would take it off with a sterilized uh, paperclip, and I'd put it onto a new, that's a, there's one right here, look, paperclip. And, <laughs> and I'd put it onto a new Petri dish, and I kept moving down the line until I had isolated strains of yeast that I could say, this is a yeast strain that came from our backyard, and, and I'm going to send it to these people. And I have it. It's in my freezer, but it exists, right? And so if you want to use it for something, be my guest, right? But I got it. Because yeast is awesome. And this is how yeast works, right? If you get yogurt, go to the cafe later, buy one of those yogurts. It's the best yogurt ever, right? Buy that yogurt, look at the back, and it's going to say something on there. It's going to say that this yogurt contains an active bacteria culture, right? And every time I read that, I picture like a little culture bacteria playing volleyball and all this kind of stuff, like an active bacteria culture. But the way that yeast works is that when yeast starts to multiply and die and multiply and die and multiply and die, the way that it works is it starts building up this like fervency and it's multiplying, 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 right? So if if you took like a single grain of yeast and you took 60 pounds of flour, like Jesus is saying, and you put that yeast in the flour, mixed it with water and waited, it probably wouldn't walk through the whole flour, Right? The way that people would do that in those days and the way that people would do that today is they would start out with a single bacterium of yeast. Right? They start with a single isolated colony and they'd grow it. Right? They'd take a little test tube and they'd grow it. 
Then they get a little bigger test tube. Then they grow it. They take a beaker. They grow it. They take a little thing. They grow it in a liter. And they grow it. And they grow this active bacteria culture. And in the baking terms, it's called a leaven. That you have this leaven, like a starter. And it's just going and going and going and going. And it's bubbling and fermenting. And it's active and it's moving. And then you take that starter. And when that starter is active, you put it in 60 pounds of flour. And it just consumes the thing. Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is like. My kingdom is this culture, this active, not bacteria, active culture of men and women and kids who are so fervently passionate about the Lord that when you dump them into society, it just consumes the thing. People get changed. Lives are transformed. Communities transform because the leaven, I get excited about yeast. (laughs) Because the leaven works through all the dough. There's something powerful about a small, active community of people who are passionate about following Jesus. A few months ago, Pastor Jake from last week and I started a little group called East Bay Orphan Care, and we started talking about how we might reach out to orphans in our area, and, and through the, the midst of that, a bunch of people got connected with it, and it started becoming, like, this is exciting, like, how can we really help? And, and so Alameda County Foster Care reached out to us. And said, this is what we would love. We, we would love, we have this party, a Christmas party for all the foster kids in Alameda County. And, and the teens, just, their thing, their thing is so lame. Like, it's so lame. Like, they show up, and people are giving them, like, footed pajamas, and, and they're just sitting there, right? And the two-year-olds are having fun, but the teenagers just feel like they're rejected and nobody wants them. And then we throw them this lame Christmas party. Could you throw them a great Christmas party? And we're like, yeah, Definitely. Now, this story is not going to be me bragging about First Press or Three Crosses or me or Jake. This is my story bragging about Jerry Lester at First Baptist. Because Jerry Lester finds out that we're doing this, and he's like, dude, we're all in. If you know Jerry Lester, that's how he talks. Dude, we're all in. We're all in. Just tell us what you need. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Can you send some people down and hang out with these kids? He's like, done. What else do you need? I'm like, I don't know. We've never done this before. He's like, I'll take care of it. So he goes to his church, First Baptist, and talks to Don Ott, the pastor's there, and says, listen, we, we really want to bless these orphans that are coming in for this foster care thing. And so their church takes up all these donations of gift cards to give the kids. And they came out with like $1,700 worth of gift cards to give these kids. And then we said, hey, we want a barbecue. And they said, well, we'll send some people down to barbecue. And, and this mom in their church, she's a single mom, doesn't have a lot of resources. She said, listen, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for all of it. I'll pay for all the food. I love what you're doing. Let's go do it, right? And so the day of the thing was one, during one of our Christmas outreaches. We go down there, and these foster kids are coming in. And, and Jerry and his people show up, and it was like electric. Right? Like there was a video game truck there. There was a laser tag arena that we brought in. Right? There's Luis's barbecuing. Right? And there's people everywhere hanging out with kids, giving out gift cards. And these orphans felt like for the first time in a long time that someone had thought about them at this Christmas party. And I walked away from that and I realized over at First Baptist, there is an active culture of men and women who are fired up about serving the Lord Jesus. Right? And when you take that culture and you put it into the world, transformation happens. Right? And that culture exists here, right? We see the same thing with the outreaches, see the same, same thing with the backpack drive, with the food drive, with the kids' ministry outside, with the Easter, all those things. When men and women are fired up about Jesus together, it forms 11. That even though it's small, when you put it in the world, it consumes the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the hard thing is a lot of times we don't feel like that active culture of leaven. 
You know what happens when, when you don't feed leaven? Right, like I, I've got this little yeast culture in my kitchen that I use to bake bread and things, and don't we all? And, and I left it in my cabinet, and I have six kids, and so sometimes I don't have time to feed the leaven, you know? Like, I don't even have time to feed the chicken sometimes, let alone the leaven. And, and so a few weeks down the road, I show up, and I realize I haven't fed the leaven in a while, right? And for me, it's like, it's like the dog. I haven't fed the leaven in a while? What kind of parent am I to this leaven? And so I look into my cabinet, and it's just like, oh, man, like it was gray, and, and there was this like really hard, like creme brulee style, like crust on the top, pellicle, and... And it smelled weird, and it was all like gooey and soupy. I'm like, oh, poor Levin, what did I do to you? And that's what happens when a yeast culture stops being fed, when it stops being active, is the yeast start dying, and then the really nasty yeast start producing, and it just starts getting weird. Right? There's a chance that if you're in a place where your heart is hard, there's that pellicle over your heart, like creme brulee crust, and you just haven't been fed in a while. Right? The, the way to get that leaven back going again is you get some new flour, you get some new water, you mix it up, and you take just a spoonful of the old crusty stuff, and you put it in the new culture, and you let it grow for a couple days, and you do it again, then you do it again, and do it again. And by feeding it and allowing it to consume the, the, the flour again and feeding it and feeding it and feeding it, it gets healthy again and gets back to life again. Right? The thing is, a lot of us, when we think, oh, I haven't been fed in a while, we think, oh, yeah, I need to read the Bible. I, I need to pray. You do need to do those things. But in, in the yeast metaphor, feeding it is not giving it the Bible in prayer. Feeding it is putting the leaven back into the place it was meant to exist, back into the world and letting it have an impact, let it consume the things around it. And a lot of times what happens is we get old, old and crusty in our faith and and then we just go to the Bible, and it's not working, right? And we're like, oh, I, I couldn't serve yet. I'm not ready yet. I couldn't serve in the community yet. I'm not ready yet. I can't serve at Cross Streets yet. I'm not ready yet. I need to get fired up again. And you can't get fired up again. What Jesus is saying is the way that yeast stays active is by being in the world and doing its work, by bringing the transforming power of Jesus into the world. Right? And so if you feel like, oh, no, I, I couldn't serve somewhere. I can't step into service. I can't be an usher or a greeter or be in the cast. I can't be at Cross Streets. I can't serve in the Hispanic ministry, whatever it is. If I, I can't serve because I'm not active and vibrant enough. A lot of times serving is what makes you active and vibrant again. Right? You put yourself in an active community and you become that active community. We're not meant to just be a single grain of yeast that permeates through the world. Jesus is the first single grain of yeast. The, the rest of us are meant to be part of an active culture. And man, if you are stale in your faith, if there's that hard crustiness over your heart, then drop yourself into an active culture. Find a place where people are fired up about Jesus and say, can I hang out with you? And maybe you exist in a place in your workplace, no one's fired up, right? Find people who feel crusty too and say, you know what? Hey, can we get together and let's go impact the world together, right? Let's pray together. Let's, hold, let's, let's live life together because when we exist with the Spirit together in community, the vibrancy comes back. If you've been stale and hardened in your faith, you got to get back into a place where the culture is active and you'll just get swept right in. And so often we think about these things and we think, man, I've walked away from God. I need to figure out what I need to do to get back towards God. But that, that is not how Christianity works. Like Christianity is a faith where God does all the work and, and we simply surrender to him. 
Right? We surrender to him and say, God, I'm just going to put myself in a place that's more likely to bring fervency into my spiritual life. God, I'm going to put myself into a place under your word where I'm likely to receive your grace. I'm going to put myself in a place in this worship service where I'm likely to hear your voice, where I'm likely to be drawn up in worship with those who are praising you alongside of me. I'm going to put myself in a place, God, because I can do nothing on my own. You've got to do it, so I'm going to put myself in a place where your grace can transform me. This morning, we have an opportunity to receive the Lord's table together, communion. The communion meal is the covenant renewal ceremony for the body of Christ. It's a place where we come and we eat bread and we drink this juice and we remember the one whose body was given for us. We remember the one whose blood was poured out for us and we consume these foods and we realize that my spiritual life and vitality is not by doing anything. It's by letting Jesus come in to me. So this morning, we're not going to let you walk out of this room thinking I'm going to go get better in my faith. Instead, we're going to sit with the Lord in this communion meal. And we're going to say, God, we need you in me. God, I need you to create in me a clean heart. God, I need you to replace my heart of stone with a heart of flesh. God, I need you to step into me and my community and reactivate this culture that has gotten stale. God, I need you in me. I need to remember the death of Jesus, that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the power to live for the Lord forever. Let me pray for us as the ushers come out to distribute the elements. Once we receive them, I'll come back up and I'll lead us in prayer and we'll receive them together. Let's pray.